0: Well, good morning. Good to see everyone out this morning. Go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to start where I left off last week. There was just a couple of slides I didn't get to, and I'll get through those very briefly. I did mention that if you're familiar with the Go Tell the Good News series by Bob and Sandra Waldron, that I really like the way they they kind of divide up Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapters 1 through 7. collection for the poor saints, and then chapters 10 through 13, Paul's defense of his apostleship. Also, there's a commentary out there by Paul Butler. Uh, I really like the way he has kind of given these subject titles to to each of these chapters. I'll not read through all of those, but you can see there the problem of adversity in chapter one, the problem of loneliness in chapter two, and so forth. Um, I, I like that because I think that approach makes it real to us in a sense that each of us can ask ourselves these questions. Have I ever experienced adversity? Well, certainly. We all have. How did this man of God handle it? Have we ever been lonely? Paul was lonely at times. How did he handle it? Have we ever been accused of legalism? Well, what is that? How do we handle accusations about legalism? Have we ever been discouraged? Have we ever lost perspective? Have we ever needed to repent? Well, the answers to those questions are obvious. Yes, yes, and more yes. Uh, What about giving? What about uh, slander? What about weakness? You know, we all need help with these things, and it's all here. So, let's finally turn our attention to the questions from the handouts, and you never thought we would get there, did you? But uh, uh, there are a few handouts still back there on the AV booth if you need them, not a whole lot, but uh, we have printed a lot of them, so hopefully everyone has a copy. Of course, the first seven questions are introductory-type questions, so... uh, we should be able to sail through most of those now question number one on which journey did the apostle paul establish okay that's the key word there which journey did he establish the church in corinth okay i heard second second missionary journey and uh, the answers will be up here if uh, you forgot to do your homework and you need to write those in real quick all right (laughs) Number two, on which journey did Paul write both of his epistles to the Corinthians? On his third journey. Question number three, where was Paul when he wrote his first epistle? And remember, we talked a little bit about that when we say first. Apparently, there was at least one letter, maybe more, that Paul had written that have not been preserved for us. But the letter we know is 1 Corinthians. Where was Paul? Where was he located when he wrote that letter? I heard Ephesus. Okay, that's correct. Bonus question. How long was Paul at Ephesus? Three years. We know that from Acts 20 and verse 31. Okay, you may want to write that in there. Let's see. That one already. Yeah. Let me get caught up here. Where was Paul when he wrote his second epistle, the one we're studying this quarter? Where was he located when he wrote that letter to the Corinthians? Okay, somewhere in Macedonia, and we we think of cities like what? Name some cities in Macedonia. Philippi. Another one. Remember, he went from the port city of Neapolis to Philippi and then he went to Thessalonica by way of those smaller cities that are mentioned, Amphipolis, Apollonia. So Thessalonica, what else? Where'd he go from Thessalonica? They were more noble. Okay, Berea. All right, now, um, Paul mentions in chapter 8 and verse 1, the grace of God bestowed on the churches plural, of Macedonia. So if Paul traveled the logical path, the Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, then he, it's likely that he did not write this letter from Philippi because at that point it would just have been church singular. Most likely he wrote it later in his travels through Macedonia. Whose arrival likely prompted Paul's writing of this epistle. I heard somebody say something to Titus. And I've kind of added here, not likely, but certain. It's certainly what prompted the writing of this. All right, question number six. Uh, What sorts of things about Paul were questioned by those challenging his apostolic authority? This is somewhat of a detailed answer. You've got some clues there to look for. Uh, the first one, maybe not so obvious, depending on the translation that you're using. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, what did you write down for that? Not keeping his word, okay? Um, I, I've put down here his, his veracity, perhaps. Okay, that means truthfulness, his truthfulness. Some were saying that he was fickle. Um, If you have a New King James Version, it says in verse 17, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? If you have an NIV, it says, was I fickle when I intended to do this? So what does that word fickle mean anyway? Easily change your mind. My definition, what kind of came to my mind was wishy-washy, although that's more of a description than it is a definition, right? <laughs> Anybody have another synonym maybe for fickle? Uh, I think it goes a little bit beyond just easily changing your mind. The actual definition is not constant or loyal subject to change especially due to instability but however you look at it it's not a very good character trait if somebody is saying of us that we're fickle is it but paul goes on to say in verse 17 the things i plan do i plan according to the flesh that with me there should be a yes yes or a no no i really like the way the new living translation puts it here You may be asking, this is Paul speaking, of course, you may be asking why I changed my plan. Do you think that I make my plans carelessly? Do you think I am like people of the world that say yes when they really mean no? But what is all that about anyway? What is driving this question back to the church at Corinth? Well, at the end of Paul's first letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 5 through 8. He tells them, beginning in verse 5, he says, Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you that you may see me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now but hope to stay with you longer, if the Lord permits. I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. So let's back up and refocus a little bit. Paul wrote this first letter from Ephesus. He tells them in that letter that he wants to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost and then go and see them. And he wants to go through Macedonia first. Now, that's exactly what Paul ended up doing, isn't it? But we fast forward a little bit to this letter. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 15-17, through 17. we see Paul asking this question, Do you think I made my plans carelessly? The context suggests that Paul changed his mind after writing 1 Corinthians and instead intended to go straight to them from Ephesus and then to go to Macedonia, and then come back to Corinth so that they would get that second benefit, that second visit. Uh, And That plan had to have been communicated to them at some point. We talked earlier about that correspondence that went back and forth between Corinth and Ephesus. Some of that, again, hasn't been preserved for us. But something changed his mind. And in the closing verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is saying in essence, it was not my intent to deliberately deceive you, but it doesn't matter what I say or what I plan when God says yes, it's yes, when God says no, it's no. Also in verse 23 of chapter 1, there's an indication that he decided not to go directly to them from Ephesus in order to spare them. We'll talk about that more later so instead he delays his efforts to see them um anyway so so that's the background on perhaps why they are questioning why he changed his mind right and uh, let's see his truthfulness or his veracity well I, i just threw the answers up to the next part so Uh, In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 10, we see two things there. His bodily presence was weak. His speaking ability was contemptible. And then uh, that last answer, if you will, from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 7 through 9, or, or 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, do you guys have anything for that? Perhaps a fourth answer here. His refusal to accept financial support from them. Can you imagine that being something he was accused of? A bone of contention, if you will. In uh, Second Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13, Paul says, "What is it in which you were inferior to other churches except that I myself was not burdensome to you?" And then he says, "Forgive me this wrong." How was Paul being supported if the corinthians weren't supporting him other churches what other is what yeah, so other churches Philippi being one of them, what other way was he being supported what was he what was his profession? he was a tent maker um It's likely uh, how he met Aquila and Priscilla. They were also tent makers, okay? So he was receiving support from other churches. That's implied by 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, but also in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 8, Paul says that he robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to the Christians at Corinth. Now, what does it mean that he robbed other churches? I mean, it's wrong to steal, right? What does it mean that he robbed other churches? Okay. Um, Possibly. Let's go back and look at the word robbed here for a minute, all right? Most translations do use the same English word. Does anybody have anything in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 8 different from the word robbed? I think most translations use the word robbed because there really isn't a better word for it. But keep in mind that the English word "rob," like so many other words in the English language, has Multiple meanings. What's that? Taking wages from? That's a good answer. Um, We'll get more into that here in a second. I've got a couple of definitions that I wrote down here. One is to take something from someone by unlawful force or threat of violence. To steal. Is that what Paul did to other churches? Obviously not. The other one is to deprive someone of something legally due. The subtle difference here is the willingness of the one being robbed to be robbed. Does that make any sense? The w- a willingness to be deprived of something. Uh, Paul will talk about this later in the letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. Uh, When we give back to God, what should be our attitude about that? Cheerfully, not grudgingly or of necessity. What does that word grudgingly mean? What comes to your mind when you hear that? What's that? Unwilling? Okay, certainly. Uh, Out of sadness, sorrow, or heaviness of heart. Was the definition I found for that. Uh, can we give that way? We could. Will the fund still be put to good use if we give that way? Yes, it will. Will God be pleased with us? No. And cheerfully, as was mentioned. The Greek word is hilaros. Hilaros. It's the same word that we get our words hilarious and hilarity from you know something that's extremely funny as we think of it today doesn't really seem to fit here does it that's because the original definition of the word hilarity simply referred to a state of joyfulness cheerfulness gaiety or merriment the greek word hilaros is the same greek word uh, i mentioned that already uh, I was going to say in, in ancient Rome, they had this class of holidays called the Hilera. They were characterized by times of celebration and rejoicing. I suppose much like we would feel at Thanksgiving or at Christmas. But in that passage in second Corinthians chapter nine and verse seven paul 's reminding the Christians at Corinth that when they give for the right reasons, when they are overjoyed. Just for the privilege of being able to give, that should create a state of cheerfulness or merriment. And it's that kind of giving, of course, that God loves. Now, I know that was a bit of a detour from the lesson, but it was one of those rabbit holes I went down, and I thought I'd share that with you. I thought that's kind of interesting. The point I wanted to make here is that other churches were willing to be deprived, they were willing to be uh, robbed in a sense, so that Paul could continue his work, and in this case, to continue his work at Corinth while not being a burden to the Christians at that location. Um, Paul did point out in his first letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 14 and 15, that he had every right to be supported by them, but he simply chose not to do so. Most likely, it appears, that that he didn't want it to look like he was preaching only for monetary gain. Okay. So, any any comments about charges against Paul, about giving in general, support for preachers, that sort of thing. Related to question number six, there. All right. Question number seven. What other main topic does Paul discuss in this epistle? Uh, That'd be a tough question to answer if you weren't given a hint there. Chapter 9 and verse 1. What'd you put for that? What other main topic? Love for one another, ministering to the saints. Okay, uh, the context indicates this had to do with a collection for the needy saints in Jerusalem. That was a big part of Paul's third missionary journey, as it was, right? So, that was the answer I had as well, ministering to the saints. All right, question number eight begins the first chapter of 2 Corinthians. So... uh, Typically, I want to read the entire chapter before I get into it. But in the interest of time, and we're trying to make up a little bit of time. I want to focus on verses 3 through 7 and then get into the questions. And if you, if you like to highlight things in your Bible or, or underline or circle things in your Bible, I want you to pay real close attention in verses 3 through 7, the use of the words comfort, comforts, comforted, Consolation and encouragement. And it kind of depends on your translation. The New King James Version that I'll be reading from here uses both the words comfort and consolation. Your translation may use the word encouragement in some places. It's actually the same Greek word. they translate into the, all those English words. So beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort. Here's the first one. Who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation all right question number eight who joins Paul in writing this epistle Timothy Uh, at the time this is written from Macedonia both Titus and Timothy are with Paul so it's unclear to me why Timothy or excuse me why Titus is not mentioned in the salutation but maybe it's because Titus was the bearer of both of the letters and that's understood all right, Timothy. Question number nine. What two groups of people does Paul address his salutation to? What two groups of people? Okay, and Achaia is also known as Greece. All right. <clears throat> Many of the things that Paul wrote may have been targeted specifically to those in the church at Corinth. But the intended audience was all believers who were in, in communication with the church at Corinth. That would have included believers in Sancria and in Athens, for instance. <clears throat> all right, so how does this is question number 10? How does Paul describe the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. As, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to spend some time talking about the God of all comfort and the many ways that he provides that comfort. Um, in fact, uh, from that commentary by uh, Paul Butler, he kind of labels chapter one as the problem of adversity. So what is Adversity. Okay, the the definition I found was a condition marked by misfortune, calamity, or distress. That includes the trials, the tribulations that we face in this life. And I think that summarizes very well what Paul is expressing there in chapter 1. <clears throat> uh, if you think about it, the aim of adversity is to strengthen. We see that. Paul talks about that, and, and others talk about that. James, for instance, the only way to become stronger is to repeatedly overcome resistance. And, and that's kind of a difficult concept to grasp, isn't it? Especially when it's adversity and when we're undergoing that adversity. But one of the best examples I could think of was a, a weightlifter. You know, a, a, a weightlifter repeatedly overcomes a resistance. Why do they do that? I want to get stronger. You know, they're, they're seeking that, that muscle failure, you know, the burn, they call it. No pain, no gain. You hear that sometimes. Uh, because they know that when they, when they break down those muscles, they build back stronger and, uh, and, and, and larger even, right? So, uh, that could be said about all kinds of athletic events, right? Romans right? Romans 8 talks about God subjecting all creation to futility. One translation calls it God's curse. That futility inevitably leads to adversity and affliction. Why did God do that? Well, Romans 8 says that it was so that all creation would hope and groan and labor for divine assistance and redemption. And... Part of that assistance that God provides us is comfort. And that leads us into the next question What's the proper use of the comfort we receive from God? Comfort others, exactly. Someone once said, What sense does it make to expect forgiveness from God when we refuse to forgive others? You ever thought about that? The same could be said about comfort. When we hurt, we want to be comforted, don't we? What sense does it make to expect comfort from God and then refuse to turn around and comfort others? One of the advantages of enduring suffering and other tribulations is that we are then better equipped to help others, aren't we? To provide comfort especially those that are enduring the same kind of suffering that we have endured in the past. One of the real advantages of support groups, and the reason they're so popular, whether it's Alcoholics Anonymous or some other kind of support group, is that one can be comforted by those that have been there and done that and lived to tell the tale. The church... The local body of believers should be one big support group, comforting one another as we all navigate a world so full of of pitfalls and barriers. And tribulations come in all shapes and sizes. The word tribulation used here in verse 4 comes from the Greek word, and I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this right, thalipsis. Literally refers to a pressing together. You've probably heard that before. When we're undergoing any kind of tribulation, it can feel like the weight of the world is just pressing in on us on all sides, and then we're just getting squished in the middle. Paul would express the same idea in chapter 4 and verse 8 when he said, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. and You know, it's all too easy to, to look at someone else's problem and say, I don't know what you're worried about. Maybe we say this to ourselves. I don't know what you're worried about. I don't know why you're making such a big deal out of that because what you're going through is a cakewalk compared to what I'm going through. But everyone's tribulation is different, isn't it? And if we're the one undergoing that tribulation, well, it's important to us. Uh, I think it was Leland that talked about this recently. And he said, we may not all be in the same boat, but we are all in the same storm. I like that. I wrote it down. Paul was undergoing tribulation. It was Titus that brought comfort to him and were likewise to bring comfort to one another. What are some ways that we can bring comfort to one another? Listen. Listen. What else? Okay. Is that with two by fours? Just prop them up. (laughs) Financial support, maybe, if that's what's needed. Uh, What are some other ways we can support and encourage our brethren? Okay, being consistent. Being kind of like an anchor, right? <laughs> that, that someone can, a lifeline that someone can grab onto. Cards, emails, <clears throat> texts of encouragement. That's become a lot more popular these days, right? With the social distancing and whatnot. <clears throat> Studying with someone. Good. How about? Job's friends. This kind of goes back to listening, right? Um, It might just be a willingness to sit there and say nothing at all. (laughs) You you go back to that story, and and we can be pretty harsh on Eliphaz and, and Bildad and Zophar. But you know, they sat with Job for seven days and seven nights and didn't say a word. I have some pretty good friends. I believe I'd have to tag team with somebody on that one. Sometimes there just aren't any words. And it was only when they decided to open their mouth that things kind of went sideways, right?
1: <laughs>
0: okay, any any uh, comments on the proper use of comfort? and the ways that we can comfort one another. We'll talk about that more as we go, but... Best avenue is prayer. And and Paul actually thanks them for that. We'll get into that question a little bit later. He thanks them for their prayers during the situation that occurred in Asia, most likely there in Ephesus, where he despaired even of life, you know, so... All right, let's drive on. What two things abound in Christ? This is question number 12. What two things abound in Christ? Sufferings. What else? What comes with sufferings? should come with it. Comfort. Or again, your, your translation may say consolation. It may say encouragement. The theme of 1 Peter seems to be that the road that leads to glory is absolutely paved with suffering. I've always thought it was interesting that John's description of heaven in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 21 was that each of the 12 gates, each of the 12 entrances are described as pearls. Why would that be interesting? Well, in the description of heaven, a lot of jewels are described. They're mentioned. But it's only the gates that are described as being made of pearl. And the pearl is the only jewel that is formed through suffering. Did you know that? For a shelled mollusk, a piece of dirt or sand or some other debris becomes a constant source of irritation to the mollusk. And the mollusk secretes this protective coating around this irritant. And over a long period of time, that constant source of irritation becomes a pearl. So if you're wearing a necklace of pearls this morning. Know that a lot of mollusks suffered for a long time. But isn't that why James would say in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, that we should count it all joy when we fall into various trials? And he goes on to explain the benefit of, of received from those various trials. Of course, right here in verse 5, tells us along with suffering comes that consolation or that comfort or that encouragement. And and here's another bit of advice. I, I think pride can keep us from accepting the consolation that God makes available to us. And I'm just as guilty as anyone. Maybe I don't want my brethren to be bothered by my problem. So I don't tell anyone. It's pride that loudly proclaims, this is my burden to bear. But when we take that attitude, this passage, verse 5, tells us that we're missing out on a great blessing. Not only that, but what does Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2 tell us? Bear one another's what? Burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. If we have a burden to bear, and we don't tell anyone, we're going to bear that burden alone, aren't we? That burden we are bearing alone could be the burden that ultimately breaks us. The law of Christ is to spread that burden around so that it doesn't break us. makes sense doesn't it any questions about suffering about comfort or encouragement uh, any comments on bearing one another's burdens and if you do raise your hands so we can get a microphone to you and uh, that way those that are sitting in the parking lot can, can hear the question okay number 13 where had paul experienced some trouble it's kind of a two-part question Where was he when he experienced some trouble? In Asia. And doesn't specify Ephesus, but we know that he had some trouble in Ephesus from Acts, don't we? Okay. Uh, How serious was it? Fear of death. Okay. It was so bad, verses 8 and 9 say, that he despaired of life and could only trust in God who raises... The dead. So note that Paul doesn't tell the Corinthians what the affliction was necessarily, and Acts doesn't provide hardly any details about that, but he does describe how serious it was, despaired of life. And when I read that initially, I had to ask myself, have I ever been in so much trouble Have I ever been under such adversity or such affliction that I despaired of life? And I think that if I had, I would remember that. And I don't remember ever being that way. But that doesn't mean that we don't have brothers and sisters among us who are feeling that way. And I can certainly see how the the current distress with the virus with shutdowns economic uncertainty maybe loss of confidence in in our government and its leaders i can see how that could force someone into feeling that way and so about that i would just say that if you are feeling that way please let someone know don't keep it bottled up inside Don't let pride keep you from the comfort that God can provide through the brethren. Keeping depression bottled up, that just leads to more depression. And given enough time, something like that can break us. Don't let that happen. Any any comments on, you know, Paul's trouble in Asia, dealing with affliction, or depression? We got one from
2: Nathan over here. Mine's more geared toward the comment you just made about, you know, if we're dealing with something, to share it with others. And, you know, I for one, I, I know what that's like to be able to have some brethren amongst this group to confide in and the encouragement would be to that, that it truly works you know god's word is not you know with void it, it, it's true when it when it tells us to you know in james 5 16 to confess our sins or to confess our you know burdens or whatever it is to one another that we can pray for each other and talk through it and study or and things like that it, it helps so the encouragement would be to you know, seek out somebody and Together some time to go through God's word and to just open up. You know, it doesn't have to be a large group. You know, small groups, you know, probably would be more more precise for that to where you can open up and feel confident that what you're sharing will be concealed within that group and, and they can pray for you and, and work through it with you.
0: Yeah, I like that. You got have you ever heard the word synergy? The idea that two or more people working together can produce an output greater than the sum of the parts. So two people working together can produce output greater than two people by themselves could do. And isn't that what we get when we bear one another's burdens and when we have multiple people praying with us and for us, there is this this absolute synergy and plugged into the the, the source of all power all things can happen right another comment I'm
1: gonna say in 2019 I had my job and I lost it all of a sudden and I went through and then Corona hit it hit at the same time and the next year so it made it difficult to find work and made it difficult to find uh, anybody to talk to or confide in and I'm lucky. I have a really big family, so they were able to help me during that time. But sometimes you think you're keeping it all secret and everything like that. Well, there were people that noticed <laughs> that I was going through with that. And the only thing I tell you that helps you through that is you need to read about Jesus. You need to read about Jeremiah. And you need to read about a couple of other people like Paul who went through it so I have been to the point where it's <coughs> despair of life but what you do is you remember this is not your home that uh, your home is in heaven and, and that should make your life a lot easier
0: and simply remembering that the God of all comfort provides comfort through the brethren as well so Don't keep that bottled up. Reach out to brethren, as Nathan was saying, and and use that, that tool that God has given us to make it through this life. Okay, let's go on the next question. This is number 14. What had worked together with God in providing deliverance? goes back to the comment over here, I think. What had worked together with God in providing deliverance? Prayer, second part of that, what other effect did it have? Thanksgiving to be given to many people on his behalf. So a lot of people praying for him and Paul being thankful for those prayers. There's been a popular saying for years, uh, we only have a couple of minutes left, never underestimate the power of prayer. You've heard that before. Uh, Someone else once said, and I like this, we need to remember that the power in prayer is not in prayer itself, but in the one we are praying to. And I know that that kind of goes without saying, but I think that we should make a distinction. The same person who said that went on to compare prayer to the cord on a lamp. You know, sitting on the floor, it doesn't do any good. It also doesn't do any good if it's plugged into a dead outlet or some other device that doesn't have any power. It's only when the cord is plugged into a source of power, and the right kind of power, I might add. If you have a lamp, it has to be plugged into AC power, not DC, most likely. And and it's only when it's plugged into the the right source of power that the cord serves any useful purpose at all. And so likewise, prayer doesn't do any of us any good, It's not plugged into the source of power. It's misdirected. If there's a selfish motive or selfish purpose in our prayer. But when prayers are plugged into the source, the source of all power, and when we pray with the right motives, and when we pray believing that God will answer our prayers, then there is real power in prayer and God answers our prayers. Now, just to clarify, though, when God answers our prayers, does he always answer our prayers the way we want him to? He doesn't, does he? I'm reminded of a saying, and I have to frequently remind myself of this. What sense does it make for us to pray, thy will be done, and then get all bent out of shape when things don't go our way? So well, that was the second bell. I'm going to leave you with that thought on prayer. We'll pick up next week. I know I got to pick up the pace if I expect to make up some ground here. But what sense does it make to pray Thy will be done and then get all bent out of shape when things don't go our way?